This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. Gotkin, and in this episode, Joachim Choablum founded Minatech to stop people wasting money on subscriptions they no longer want, but losing money in his failed data storage business, he says, was worth every penny. It was bootstrapped. It was my personal funding as the, in my early 20s that went bust, but I say it's uh, the cheapest education that money can buy. A lot of learnings for uh, a decently small amount of money. Joachim Choablum, uh, founder and CEO of uh, Minatech. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Thank you, Elliot. It's great to be here. And uh, how's Sweden? Well, it's uh, taking a turn for the worse, so to speak. I enjoyed a, a few months of very good summers, and now we're heading into eight months of ice. But uh, it has a pros and cons, right? <laughs> of course. So um, first of all, let, let's talk a bit about Minatech. You know, it's a subscription management solution, I think, for banks. Uh, enabling customers to keep track of everything they're subscribing to. And I suppose, I guess, this in a world where we're subscribing to everything from podcast platforms to toilet paper and often lose track of everything, this must be a, a pretty lucrative and growing niche. Yeah, you're spot on. So we started with this business already back in 2014. What is that now? Seven years ago. Uh, and today, this trend is known as the subscription economy. The fact that you just mentioned that people tend to consume products uh, through subscriptions instead of buying them transactional. And this was, of course, further enhanced by the global pandemic. So when people were stuck at home, well, the grocery subscriptions and even now the car subscriptions and razor blades and diapers and everything in between turning into a recurring business model. And it's important to serve this new behavior, which the incumbent banks are, in most cases, not doing good enough today. Uh, and so, I mean, you mentioned the pandemic there. So so uh, Minatech had a, had a pretty good pandemic. Were there any hairy moments? Well, I think uh, every coin has two sides to it, right? Uh, I think the, the consumer behavior really played in our favor, but we're also working with banks as our customers and our partners uh, and selling software into banks during a pandemic where innovation is the first budget to get cut. It's, of course, also cumbersome and struggling from a sales and business growth perspective, uh, but the need for our products definitely grown. Uh, and, I mean... Uh maybe you can explain a bit about the business model and, and how it works. Do, do the banks kind of buy your software like at a wholesale rate and then include it with their premium offerings to clients? How, how does it work? I think the key to understand why banks buy this today is that the cost to serve consumers, retail customers that have a lot of subscriptions is actually growing on a year by year basis. Uh, so just take an obvious example. Subscriptions are purchased e-commerce, right? So you buy a subscription, no chip, no pin meaning that transactions that are subscription-based are more likely to become disputed. Uh, the second thing is that consumers also tend to get stuck into what is known as subscription traps. So you might pay a dollar to read a New York Times article, and two weeks later you start paying for a subscription you were not fully aware about. And these customers will rely on their bank to help them to cancel a subscription. So the amount of back office tickets and phone support is also increasing linear with the amount of subscriptions. So what we're doing is actually helping banks to increase their operational efficiency, 
reducing disputes and reducing back office phone calls. So it actually saves the money by having this software. They don't necessarily have to resell it for it to be cost effective. Exactly. So they, they provide subscription management capabilities to their end users for free. And by doing so, they will decrease the operational costs. And so is this similar? There used to be a, there was a startup actually here in, in Tel Aviv called BillGuard. It was bought by Prosper for about $30 million a few years back, but then they discontinued it. I know there are others called Trim and Truebill, among, among others. Is, is this something similar to, to what Mina does, or is there a big difference? No, we're very similar to the Trim and the Truebills of the world, with the big difference that they are direct-to-consumer, so they're B2C applications, where we're completely built enterprise-grade to be integrated, white-labeled inside the bank itself. But we're solving for the same consumer problem. And this isn't something that's worthwhile for the banks just to create themselves? To If it's saving them so much money, then you think they might have a few uh, million dollars lying around to uh, perhaps build something themselves? Yeah, of course. Uh, whenever you do business enterprise software, the risk of do-it-yourself is always in the mix of things. Uh, the very big IP and the reason why this is hard to replicate is our merchant relations. Uh, so we have existing relations with more than 10,000 merchants where we know how to make a legally binding cancellation. And for banks to build this kind of a network with what questions do we need to ask Elliot if Elliot wants to cancel his Spotify and the next week Elliot wants to cancel a gym membership on a local gym, it's a lot of merchants' relations, uh, which is basically what we're bringing to the table. And how do these magazine publishers, gyms, razor blade uh, subscription companies, are they very happy that you're coming along because it helps their customers or helps give them a better reputation out there because people aren't spending money when they don't want to be? Or are they a bit miffed because perhaps it's baked into their business model that people, ooh, whoops, I forgot to unsubscribe after the special offer ended and now they're getting much lower revenue it's really two segments of, of merchants you have some of them that are a bit more modern so to speak that uh, they understand that offboarding is just as important as onboarding so let's take an example with the olympic games uh, so we saw a massive increase with consumers subscribing to eurosport player or whatever streaming service that had the rights for the olympics and the day the olympics ended people quit their subscription uh, and just locking consumers in for the sake of generating short-term revenue is not a long-term strategy. Uh, but I would also like to highlight that our business has two stakeholders. We have the financial institutions and we have the merchants. So we also have a product where consumers can sign up for a subscription that they don't have today. So what you buy and how you get out of it can both be done through one channel being the retail bank. So we also help the merchants with acquisition and retention. So it's not only about cancellation. But for those for whose you know business model is uh, partly reliant on people forgetting to uh, unsubscribe, but I guess they're a bit a bit less uh, welcoming. Yeah, I think that was five years ago. Those businesses, if they're not dead already, they will be dead very soon. And you've raised just over, I think, twenty million euros from investors, including Visa. Was it easy raising money in the middle of a pandemic? I would say it was easier than expected. So our Series B now was fifteen point five million. Uh, we raised a total of twenty five today. Uh, the B round was made in nine months completely during the pandemic. We met our lead investor once uh, who flew in from, from the UK. Uh, and I think most companies adapted to working on a remote basis. And that uh, applies for investors as well. And now things we hope are, you know, maybe we're going through another wave, but certainly things seem to be opening up all the same in terms of the economy. Uh, where do you see things going from here is the kind of supercharged digitized growth um, 
that we saw over the last what 18 months or so likely to continue in your mind are things going to go back a bit to the way they were or are you just you know what are you seeing for for the road ahead Oh, the million dollar question, what is Workplace 2.0 and what behaviors will remain post-pandemic? Uh, I think there, there will always be a, a golden hybrid. There was a lot of benefits uh, during the pandemic with the uh, incumbent companies who finally started to work with Microsoft Teams or, or Zoom. We're having this conversation online from two completely different parts of the world. I think if you're a global company, you will have a lot of relations still made on a distance. Uh, but in the end, business and relations are, are made people to people. So I'm longing for the day where you can also have that human interaction and a creative whiteboard session and a good dinner. Uh, so I like to see a hybrid of the past 12 months and, well, the years before that. And uh, Minatech isn't your first startup. Uh, so perhaps you can tell us about some of the others, both the successes and failures uh, that you experienced along the way before getting here. Sure. I'm celebrating 11 years as a tech entrepreneur now. So I started my first company back in 2010, and that's a real fail story. Well, maybe not due to my behavior, but to the market dynamics, which I should have been able to foresee. So back in 2010, I started my first company working with the data recovery. So restoring mechanical hard drives if the lightning struck or if you spilled coffee on your computer and you needed to save your Excel files and your photos. But two things happened. First of all, the hard drives changed from mechanical to solid state SSD drives, which is a lot harder to make recovery from. And the second thing is cloud storage. So most consumers started to store their photos into the cloud and I went out of business. So in a very short period of time, the need for data recovery basically got evaporated. So how long did that last for? Uh, so I ran the company for three years. So between 11 and 14, uh, and uh, at the late uh, 2013, I started to witness that this will not uh, be sustainable. So I went to university to fund the last dying attempt of at that business on a student loan, and it didn't succeed. And so I, was this, uh, did you lose a lot of money? Did you have investors or was it kind of more of a, like let's say a traditional business rather than a, a quote unquote startup? Uh, it was very much traditional. So it was bootstrapped. It was my personal funding as the, in my early 20s that went bust. But I say it's uh, the cheapest education that money can buy. A lot of learnings for a, a decently small amount of money. And after that one, what came next? Uh, so I actually helped my father to start his own car inspection firm. So I went completely out from tech into to car inspection because the regulation changed in Sweden. So before that, the state had a monopoly on doing car inspections, which is legally enforced on an annual basis. Uh, so I actually helped him to start the first uh, private car inspection in the county, uh, which later on he got headhunted into another newly started. So that was also a very short entrepreneurial journey, so to speak. Uh, but during my years at uni, uh, I had some very annoying subscription experiences. Uh, so I realized as a student with a very limited budget and the depth from my previous venture uh, that I was paying recurring payments that I hadn't been using for more than six months. In this case, it was a video streaming service. Uh, and okay, that's annoying. I'm paying for things I no longer use. And the second experience that basically triggering me to starting Mina was a very bad cancellation experience. So I was supposed to switch my telco contract when I became a student, and that was more than an hour in the phone line just to get out of my old contract. So, okay, I have a lot of contracts. I waste time. I waste money. Let's try to solve this. And we kicked that off by participating in the Dragon's Den. 
So I was actually part of the TV show when it aired in March 2015. And that's the early days of Mina. This was the, uh, the, the British version or this was, there was a Swedish version? The Swedish version. It's the same and, uh, concept. <laughs> so that must have meant that uh, some of the entrepreneurs there gave you a hard time. Did they invest? Did they say, You're a, don't be ridiculous, this is never going to work? How, how was it? Four out of five actually offered to invest a full amount of money. Uh, so I asked for 90,000 euros at that point. Uh, and of course, that's not a lot of money, but at the early stage, it's some good validation and the exposure from the TV show is worth a lot more than that. So we actually ended up raising uh, 250k euros, so 2.5 million Swedish crowns uh, from other investors at the time of the TV show airing. So in the program, I did accept the money, but what happens after the show is any form of classical due diligence and we got better offers from the market. Ah, so you, you didn't eventually take any money from the Dragons? Correct. So they lost their opportunity. Presumably, they were also trying to drive a harder bargain in terms of the amount of equity they would uh, take as well. They always seem to, to ask for kind of obscene amounts of uh, equity. Yeah, they were ready to put in on the terms that were stated in the program, but they gave a lot of hard deliverables. So you need to prove X, so you need to prove Y. And at the time, we had proven those bullets. The market had more favorable terms. Well, at least it was, uh, I suppose, a, a, a productive experience in the end, even if the dragons themselves uh, didn't invest. Um, but look, uh, Joachim, we're going to come back to your story in just a moment, because I just need to remind our listeners that this podcast is part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. And in this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and to continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry and you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com so um so from the dragons this was uh this was the beginning of minatech the 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 investment there yeah indeed and uh, that early money basically allowed us to build a b2c application very much like trim and trubel are today uh, so this was prior to open banking, right? So we build our own reverse engineer APIs and fetchers and scrapers to collect financial data before it was allowed. So our early relations with the banks were not that healthy and pleasant. Uh, I think you recall this period where banks said, do not touch my data. Uh, and I was basically a 26-year-old person saying, hey, I have a business idea. Can I read your data? And they will throw you out of a window. Uh, today, the dynamics are very different. Consuming data is, well, part of the regulation, as long as you have the consent from the customer. Uh, but we launched in 2016 uh, a standalone application where consumers in Sweden could download our app to manage the recurring spend. We ran that for roughly a year, uh, became the second most adopted B2C fintech in Sweden after Klarna. Uh, and at this point of time, we got approached by Swedbank, which is the biggest domestic bank in the Nordics, who said that we would like to offer this functionality towards our retail customers. So in late 2016, we started a huge pivot, moving this from a B2C solution to an integrated enterprise solution. So since early 17, we've only been selling this to incumbent banks, currently across seven markets. And I mean, you've talked a bit about the other uh, companies or businesses that you uh, you ran before uh, coming coming to uh, to Mina. I mean, was being an entrepreneur always the was that always the plan? Is that something that was uh, kind of ingrained in you from from the very beginning it's a combination of also being a pretty bad employee uh, 
I like to explore things and not the best one in following orders. Uh, questioning things is very much part of my DNA. <laughs> um, and I think that the red thread is that I have an ability to see issues and I like to gather a group of talented people to solve an issue. And that has been the red thread about in all the companies. So the reason why I went into data recovery is because I dropped my hard drive into the floor and I couldn't afford to get a data recovery. So I learned to do it myself. And the history of Mina is, well, I was a student who couldn't afford my recurring payments. So let's build a solution for it. And, uh, you know, was this, I mean, it seems to be a natural choice. Was it an easy choice? Uh, I would imagine that uh, in Sweden, just like in many other, you know, European or richer countries, that there's very much an emphasis on going to university, getting your degree and getting a, a good job. So, so was it an easy path to choose? Was your family supportive? I don't come from a family of entrepreneurs, uh, very much working class heroes. So my mother's been working, uh, my mother's been working accounting and, and finance for basically all of her career. And my father is working with car inspection, uh, but they always been very encouraging that you'll make your own decisions and you choose your own path. Uh, so me taking risk is very much my own decision. And as you mentioned in Sweden, the risk is pretty limited. Uh, so even if you would go bust, there is not really much of a penalty on you. And, well, you just get back up on your feet. Uh, were, there, were there people, maybe, I don't know, teachers or friends or family members that kind of inspired you to go down that route? Or it was just something because you're kind of unable to take orders or, or get a, a day job and, and behave the way that you're expected to behave that this seemed like the best fit? There was one big trigger point during my final year of high school where I got in touch by an organization called Jaje, so Junior Achievement Young Enterprise, where you get the opportunity to run a fictive company for 10 months, basically during your final year at uni. Uh, so I did that. So my first business was actually to import skateboards from the US and sell them in Sweden as part of my high school studies. And this really triggered me that I can actually earn money when doing what I think is fun. And that's so different from theoretical studies. So I left high school with that experience that running a business is not gray suits and middle-aged men. Pardon my expressions. Uh, but I, I got a very different perspective that running business is what you make it. And I'm sitting here now in a hoodie and I'm not showing my tattoos, but uh, pretty much not the old school stereotype of a business person. No, and forgive me, so uh, this kind of young enterprise program, they kind of gave you the, the business to run uh, and you just ran it from there? It wasn't like your idea or your concept or anything like that. It was just a, a managerial kind of CEO, quote unquote, type role. Yeah, so you basically can choose to participate in this program in which you will get school hours to actually run this as a course in your school. So you select your own idea and then you get the, the guidelines and the templates to draft your first business model. You get this fictive corporate ID. Uh, you get the fictive invoices and contracts and everything just to really trial out how it is to run your own business. And in the end, it's also mandatory to close it down. So you experience that as well. So but the business made money. It was successful. A few thousand euros, no margin. But we did win the best logotype in Sweden, and we were part of the finals for best salesperson in Sweden. So that kind of triggered the competitive vein in you as well. But there were no thoughts about when you leave high school, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run this skateboard company and I'm going to conquer the world. 
There was. And this is usually what I talk about whenever I do inspirational speeches, that I ended high school at the age of 18. Uh, so I skipped one class uh, for, for some reasons. I had an easy time in, in elementary school. But at the age of 18, coming out of high school, saying that you want to run your own business, you will run into the stigma and the attitude of society, especially in Sweden, that you're too young to run a company. Running this uh, junior achievement program is not a real company. You can't do it. And I was simply too afraid. So after high school, I went to a ski resort, to a ski resort and I worked as a snowboard instructor for three years uh, before I finally got the courage to start that first um, uh, data recovery company okay and i guess you know you you uh, are are one of the better known uh swedish uh, startups there are of course ones that are even better known whether it's spotify or uh, klarna you mentioned or, or tink how important was it to see homegrown swedish startups making it big on the world stage did that have any impact whatsoever of course i think role models is mission critical and i know the uh, the stockholm school of economics they have statistics on this that 15 or 20 years back, the students wanted to become consultants with McKinsey and Deloitte, the PwC and the others. But today, the most beautiful outcome is to be an entrepreneur. And I think that shift of attitude is very much driven by the role models. Like the Daniel Ex and the Sebastian Sitmakovskis, they are the new rock stars of the world. So, of course, it's very much inspirational and it motivates you to take risk. And I mean, you know them, you hang out with them, you kind of... Uh talk about entrepreneurship and scaling businesses and stuff? Not those individuals, but I would say that the startup scene in Sweden is actually pretty mature. Uh, so you can get a lot of mentorship, which is also good for that second generation of founders where I consider myself to be in. That's, there is capital that gets reinvested into the scene and there is experience that is available in the scene. And to be honest, when you ask for mentorship and advice, most people will give it to you if you just dare to ask. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, most of the those other startups, the big ones, the Spotify's, the Tinks, uh, and perhaps the Klarna's from Stockholm in the main. Um, you're from you're based in Gothenburg, uh, which uh, I've checked on Google Maps is uh, a bigger distance from Stockholm than Boston is from New York. Um, do you all feel part of the same ecosystem? Is there a kind of rivalry between different cities' startup ecosystems? Well, there is a common metaphor that you compare the the West Coast and the East Coast, similar to the US. So the East Coast is a little bit more finance and suits and the West Coast is a little bit more pizza and sneakers. Uh, I think it's the same. So the, the attitude uh, is a little bit more relaxed in Gothenburg and uh, the attitude to collaboration between startups is also friendlier, is less elbows. But of course, we're the little brother. The, the capital gets invested in Stockholm and there is also a nerve in you that wants to beat them. Uh, but I'm born in the North, so I'm very much ne neutral in this East or West conversation. Right. But, but Gothenburg, for those who aren't familiar, is on the west coast of Sweden. So maybe the uh, the west coast of Sweden is more analogous to the west coast of uh, of the US. Uh, and I mean, you know, since you are there on the ground, uh, are there any other, you know, Swedish startups that are going to be the next big thing uh, that we should be watching out for? In Gothenburg, you've got a lot of uh, automotive history. So it's the hometown of, of Volvo and all of their autonomous investments. And there are a lot of startups in that space. Uh, we also got AstraZeneca and a lot of biopharma and medtech. So I think automotive and medtech, you will see a lot coming out of that. And on the fintech front? No, not as many, unfortunately. 
But uh, we well, do. we're headquartered in Gothenburg, but we got offices in Amsterdam and London, and I am actually moving to the States in two months. So uh, I guess once uh, your country has produced Klarna and Tink uh, and uh, and Mina as well, then uh, then perhaps uh, that's its fair share of uh, of the fintech uh, market as well. But um, look, uh, uh, Joachim, I've got one final question that I, I put to everyone uh, who joins me on the fintech podcast, uh, and I know I haven't primed you, so hopefully we'll get a, a nice uh, off the cuff answer from you. Uh, and the question is this: What is the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life? So I took my scuba diving license in Thailand and then I continued the trip to Indonesia with a huge amount of hubris that now when I got the license, I can dive anywhere. So I got into very, very, um, so water with a strong current, right? It's an expert diving site. And I ended up emptying my tank in 10 minutes, which should last for like 40 minutes. And I basically hooked myself into uh, not the coral itself, but it has this like rescue chain on the bottom because I couldn't manage the current. So I was just sitting there hooked down into the current and I couldn't see jack shit. And I think that was an experience that you, you kind of need to understand your limits and your skill level of things. Uh, but in retrospect, it was a, a little bit of a ballsy move. So I'll pick that one. And I, obviously you got picked up or you managed to find your way out in the end. <laughs> yeah, I had instructors luckily who managed to get me into the non-so-currency place and get me up on the boat. Pick your currents and pick your battles for the learnings. Right, and uh, I suppose don't uh, uh, don't overestimate uh, your your abilities uh, in in particular areas that, that may not be playing to your strengths. Maybe that's a, an entrepreneurial lesson there from uh, from the school of uh, of diving. But uh, look, uh, Joachim Chobloom, uh, uh, founder and CEO of Minatech, really appreciate your taking the time to join me on the FNTech podcast and uh, perhaps by the time this goes out you'll have already moved but if not wish you the best of luck and uh, look forward to uh, seeing Minatech blossom stateside as well I appreciate the time Alex and maybe we get this opportunity to do it face to face next time I hope so you take care likewise you know it never ceases to amaze me how many FinTech and startup founders stumble upon a problem and then just set out to solve it simple as that for Joachim Choablum, it was having to pay for and then trying to cancel services he no longer wanted. And of course, it's not just good for him that Minatech is thriving and now expanding stateside. It's good for other Swedish tech founders too, who now have another mentor and role model they can seek to emulate. So thank you, Joachim Choablum, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.